The Bob Murphy Show, episode 140. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show In this particular episode, I am going to be giving you a review of some of the highlights of my chapter that just dropped. It's chapter three in the booklet on money mechanics that I'm doing for the Mises Institute. And this chapter's title is A Brief History of the Gold Standard with a Focus on the United States. And so this one, I actually actually had to do some learning on this one. I asked Joe Salerno a while ago, for some recommendations on readings on the gold standard because there were some gaps in my own understanding of it. And uh, I'm happy to report that it's really cool. And this, so kind of what I did in this and what I mean is that the content's really interesting. All right, so what I did here is nothing original. My goal was the same thing that I did in my Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism where I just thought, okay, I've been reading this kind of stuff for a long time. And so let me just summarize the best arguments I've seen or, you know, if, if it took me a while to understand something, like, oh, okay, well, I was confused by it for a while and then I read some different people and then synthesized and simplified it and trying to save the reader time, just present the facts and our best arguments on the various issues. By the way, if you haven't read my book, The Political Crack Guide to Capitalism, I think you should. But in any event, what I'm doing here is just clarifying a lot of stuff that may have confused you, certainly confused me on some of these matters when I was younger. And a lot of stuff too, it was kind of thing where I was like, oh man, this stuff with the bimetallism and the silver content and the silver to gold and the the price ratios and it's 15 and a half to one. And then it's, oh man, and this is, it, it just seemed like I don't want to get into this stuff unless I had a lot of time to do it. Well, I finally had a lot of time to do it. And so I was really glad that this opportunity presented itself because this is stuff that I was always interested in. And so now I'm going to try to share some of the highlights with you folks. So first of all, let me say this. If you, when you're thinking of the gold standard and the US dollar, if you're thinking like the significant event was in 1971, or maybe even you push it back earlier and say, ah, no, the real important thing that happened was in 1933 when that, you know, what FDR uh, seized everybody's gold and that was the death. That's actually in the story I'm telling in this chapter. By the time I got to 1930, I didn't even care anymore. Like the gold standard was already dead. And then it was more just like chronicling the patient after he'd been shot 17 times and was bleeding out. And so (laughs) what I'm getting at is, the real thing is the classical gold standard. And when you understand how that worked, then you see that, oh, once World War I came along and they destroyed it, they never got back anywhere near to what the gold standard had been in its heyday. And so in that light, the stuff FDR did in 33 and that Nixon did in 71 was just sort of like, 
almost acknowledging reality, right? So in my treatment, if you go and read the chapter, you'll see. And all this stuff, of course, folks, is at bobmurphyshow.com slash 140 if you want links to both the, the chapter that I'm summarizing and also any of the other things I might mention along the way, such as my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. Put a link to that too. So in any event, my point being, when I was sitting here telling the story, like by the time we got past the bimetallism period and the classical gold standard and then gotten past World War I, it was just, you know, I, I put that stuff in just for completeness sake. But to me, the interesting part of the story was already over. So let me also say as a bit of a preamble that it was also fortuitous of the timing here because as I was wrapping up the uh, final details on this and submitting it to the Institute for, you know, for them to edit it and get ready for publication or for, you know, for posting on the website is when Judy Shelton was back in the news and the predictable outlets were all just shocked that how could somebody who actually likes the gold standard possibly get anywhere near the printing press, the horrors. And uh, so it's, it's good. I think that this thing came is coming out in this, in this period, right? When, debates over the gold standard are back in vogue. So just to help people understand why is this such a big deal? Like why are there, they're definitely the minority at this point, unfortunately, but why are this, is there this group of economists and other academics or scholars, whatever you want to, term you want to use, public intellectuals even, who have this affinity for gold? And why do some of us look back fondly on the classical gold standard in particular. By the way, let me just mention to avoid confusion, it's not that I'm right now championing a return to gold. So even though I have nice things to say about the classical gold standard, and it certainly would be a much preferable system to what we have right now, I'm not, I used to, at one point in my career, I, I was putting out proposals and saying, this is how, you know, hey, give, I don't think the Fed should exist, but given that it does exist, here's what it should do to link the dollar back to gold. So I've stopped doing that just tactically or maybe it's strategically, I don't know. I've decided that's, that would be foolish of me to put a bunch of effort into that because even if somehow we did get the Fed to like peg the dollar to gold and to start replacing its holdings of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries with, with physical gold, and you know, even if it let outside inspectors come in and check the, the stockpiles out, they would just go off it again the next time an emergency struck. And so to me, like, I, you know, I wouldn't want to put a lot of effort into that. Um, it's also why I don't like go out to the barricades over a balanced budget amendment or something like that. Like even if somehow you push that through, they would figure out some way to violate it when they wanted to. So that's, that's why I don't, do things like that. But when somebody like Judy Shelton comes along who says nice things about the gold standard and people mock her as if she's an ignoramus, then of course I'm going to defend her and say, no, 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 what she's saying makes a lot of sense. So in any event, here's what Ludwig von Mises has to say about this idea of, or this concept of what's called sound money. So he says, and what that means is like, uh, you might also say honest money. But, you know, that, that perhaps has more of a moralistic tinge to it. But th this concept of sound money is something that's big in the classical liberal tradition. And so here's what Mises has to say about it. It is impossible to grasp the meaning of the idea of sound money if one does not realize that it was devised as an instrument for the protection of civil liberties against despotic inroads on the part of governments. 
Ideologically, it belongs in the same class with political constitutions and bills of rights. Uh, I'll keep going here. The demand for constitutional guarantees and for bills of rights was a reaction against arbitrary rule and the non-observance of old customs by kings. The postulate of sound money was first brought up as a response to the princely practice of debasing the coinage. It was later carefully elaborated and perfected in the age which had learned what a government can do to a nation's currency system. All right, and, and I skipped. Uh, he, he listed some examples, but I thought just me reading it and you listening like in your car or something, you might get lost. But he listed some historical examples of debased currencies and, you know, a bad experience with, with inflation. And that's why the classical liberal thinkers, you know, the same people who champion written constitutions and bills of rights as means of protecting the people against despotic governments also came up with this notion of sound money. All right. So for the same reason that you would want to guarantee the freedom of the press, right? Just think that through. What's the point of putting in a bill of rights, something like, hey, the government can't interfere with the press. Why would you want that in there? Like, so in the US, this is like the first amendment. Um, why would you want to have protected political speech is it because every single person who speaks is saying something great? Well, no, not necessarily. But it's the, the point being, or, or put it this way, is it really that there's no such thing conceivable as dangerous speech? No, that's not what the point is. But the point is, if you give the government the power to regulate speech, they're going to abuse that power. And so that's why there's just, no, take that off the table. The government is not allowed to interfere with political speech, period even if you come up with some utilitarian justification for it, again, on a case-by-case basis. And so likewise, is leaving money in banking to the market, is that guaranteed to be optimal in some cosmic sense? No, of course, bad things can happen. If, you know, if they're human institutions, people are fallible. But the point being, look at the danger here. Historically, just you know, anyone from a political science perspective or political philosophy, forget economics, just recognizing the danger of government abuse of power, just studying the historical record and seeing how princes and you know, monarchs have debased coinage and things like that. And, and where that term comes from, you know, to say debase, it's because historically, when the money was coins that had precious metals in them, like gold or silver, the ruler would collect the coins, melt them down, then re-stamp them with more coins. And the way you got it to work was you you poured in more of a base metal. And that was the way you made like the same amount of silver or gold go farther and be able to create more coins. And then you would just be dishonest and stamp them with the same logo or whatever to try to pass it off as if it was the same thing, even though it had less of the precious metal content. So that's what the, where the term debasing the currency comes from is because there it meant literally adding more base metal to the coinage than, it, than there should have been. All right. And so, of course, what happens in that situation? Well, the merchants realize what's going on. And so prices quoted in terms of the unit of the coin go up because you're getting less gold or silver with each coin. And so, therefore, the prices obviously adjust. So everybody recognized that phenomenon. And so how do you protect against that? That obvious avenue of theft by the ruler is you say, no, this principle of sound money, separation of money and state. The ruler is not allowed to debase the currency, period. All right? And even if you could come up with some 
justification, like, well, no, economically, if we just did it this way, then, you know, I think it'd be good. It would promote economic growth. No, 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 no. You just, you take that off the table. Just like, don't tell me about how it's fine if the government just regulates dangerous political speech or speech that's obviously incorrect. And don't worry, if there's speech that's up in the air and, you know, there's legitimate debate on this, would the government wouldn't interfere. No, no, no. You take it off the table with the, in the Bill of Rights. So likewise, Mises is saying the principle of sound money is saying the point isn't, it's not a technocratic economic policy position. It's coming from the same mindset that says we need to tie down the hands of government to protect the people's liberties. And just so like you wouldn't let the government get near the, uh, the newspaper press and let it interfere with the headlines. Likewise, don't let the government get near the printing press. Okay. So that's where, where Mises is coming from there. Um, maybe another way to just summarize some of the major periods here. So the classical gold standard, it definitely ends in 1914 with the outbreak of World War I. When, when it begins is a little bit up in the air because all it really was is starting with Great Britain. So, so originally, let me just back up a little bit. Originally, like in the early 18 and mid 1800s, lots of powerful countries, you know, of the, of the major you know, trading nations and so on, either were on a silver standard or a bimetallic standard. But then again, most notably once Great Britain switched over, more and more countries started switching over just to a gold standard. So they, what's called demonetized silver. And then over time, more and more countries did that. And so at some point, you know, we, it was a correct statement to say basically the entire modern world or, or the powerful trading blocks or major economies, if you will, are all on gold. All right, so here's a quote. So here I got... In 1873, there were some nine countries on the gold standard. In 1890, 22 countries. In 1900, 29 countries. And in 1912, 49 countries. Okay, so that's the what was happening. It was sort of thing too, like it was a snowball effect that as more and more countries just went purely on gold and demonetized silver, well, then that would lower the world price of silver. Right, because now there's less demand. Just think of it in terms of the annual output from gold and silver mines back when a lot of the nations were on a bimetallic standard. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. A lot of that output was going both into making new gold coins and new silver coins. But then as more and more nations demonetized silver and said, no, 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 we're not, we're no longer going to engage in what's called the free coinage of silver. So people bringing silver to us, we're going to stop stamping that into new silver coins that are the money in our country, once as more and more countries discontinued that, now there's excess silver on the market, right? This, one of the major demands of silver has disappeared as more and more countries went down that path. And so then that would lower the relative price of silver to gold on the world market. And so that would, in a sense, make silver flow now to the remaining countries that had stayed on a silver standard or a bimetallic standard with, you know, whatever their old price ratio was. And so now silver would flow to those countries and where people would say, oh, well, you know, the other countries have stopped taking it. So here, let me go to your country where your money is still defined in terms of silver. And you take my bullion, my raw bullion, my raw silver, and you stamp it into coins of your money, silver coins. So they would do that. And so, of course, that country then would end up stamping a lot more 
silver coins than before. And so there would be price inflation in that country in its, in its unit of currency as there were more and more silver coins being cranked out. And so in order to avoid that, more and more like those countries said, okay, well, we'll just go off silver too, just to nip this in the bud. Okay, so it was, like I said, it was, it was kind of a snowball effect that once a few major economies went down this path, then more and more started doing it and became harder and harder for the remaining ones to stay on silver. So that's partly to explain why, why this process unfolded. As far as the U.S. itself, we say, okay, when did the U.S. go on gold? And this is something, if you just do a quick you know, Google search or something, you might walk away thinking, oh yeah, the, the U.S. went on the gold standard in the year 1900 because that's when they had the Gold Standard Act that McKinley pushed through. So a little background that in 1896, there was the presidential election and the Democrats and populists put up William Jennings Bryan. And at the 96 Democratic Convention, Bryan delivered his famous cross of gold speech. So he, you know, he, he was campaigning on a policy of resuming bimetallism and resuming the so-called free coinage of silver. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But he lost. And so McKinley was like the gold standard candidate. And so then in 1900, they passed the Gold Standard Act. But all that did was codify the, the definition of the gold dollar that had already been in place since 1837. It's interesting because back in the, the coinage acts of 1834 and 1837, which revised the purity, strictly speaking, what it said was that a $10 eagle gold coin is defined as 232.2 grains of pure gold, right? But they didn't actually make a, you know, a single dollar gold coin, I think until eight, it wasn't until 1849. And if you're confused by this, just <laughs> think about, because back, back then, what was going on is regular people walking around, going to the store, paid for things with gold and silver coins. And I, I think that's something even modern Americans who are familiar with the gold standard and think it's cool don't fully get. I, I think there's this idea, and I'm just saying this because I know I used to think this way, where you're picturing that, oh, I'm, surely the U.S. government must have always issued paper currency, like green pieces of paper with pictures of dead presidents on them that were denominated in dollars, you know, $1 bill, $5 bill, $10 bill, and so on. But early on, when we were on gold or on silver, th there was like a, they were pegged to those metals, right? So they, oh, if you come to the treasury and turn over a $5 piece of paper, you'll get so many ounces of, you know, fractional ounces of gold or silver back or certain weights of the metals. That's what I used to think when I was younger. And that's, that's not real, you know, that's what it ultimately came to mean. But originally, that's not what it meant. Originally, when the U U.S., and think of it, the, the Constitution gives the, the federal government the right to coin money, right? Because that's what they were thinking of. They weren't thinking of, oh, yeah, you can print paper currency and then you have the right to, de to determine whether it should be pegged to gold and silver at a certain ratio or not. No, that's not... They were, you know, they, their mind to give the government, the federal government, the right to create the money. That's why they said coin, because they meant, yeah, you can regulate the silver content or the gold content of the dollar in terms of the various coins you, you pump out. That, that's what they meant by that. Okay, so what I'm getting at here is if you actually, so it, it's normal 
to say, oh, the basically the 1837 coinage act tinkered with the purity. And so what that means is the, the dollar, the gold dollar is defined as 23.22 grains of pure gold, which works out to $20.67 for an ounce, for a troy ounce, All right? Because a little chemistry, is it chemistry? Yeah, I guess it's chemistry. There's 480 grains in a troy ounce. Okay, so when you see something like that to say, oh, 23.22 grains of pure gold in, a, in $1 by definition, Right, so they weren't talking about market exchange rates or something. They were saying no, the, they were defining it. So, if you do four eighty divided by twenty three point two two, it works out to twenty point six seven one eight. Right, so it rounds to twenty point six seven dollars per troy ounce of gold. All right, so that that number is is significant. If you if you read about the classical gold standard, you'll see that number a lot because the idea is. Gold was locked in at $20.67 an ounce in the U.S. up until FDR that, you know what, seized everybody's gold in 1933, okay? And then he ended up revaluing it to $35 an ounce, okay? So before that, it had been $20.67. And I'm saying where that comes from historically is in this coinage act of 1837, the gold content of the dollar was defined as 23.22 grains. And so you just do the 480 divided by that, and that's what gives you the 20.67. Okay, so what I'm also getting at here, though, is notice they didn't define and say, oh, an ounce of gold is worth 20.67. That's not what they did. They were defining, <laughs> well, here I'm even getting super technical and nuanced because I think it's, it's interesting. They didn't actually even define the gold dollar. That's why when I started going off on this tangent, my point is you go and read the act, they say a $10 gold eagle coin is defined as 232.2 grains of pure gold. So if you want to know what $1 is by implication must be, then will you move the decimal place once to the left, right? So that's where it's coming from. And so what I'm saying is you might say, well, why, why are they only defining gold in terms of a $10 piece, a coin? Because what the $1 was, was from the silver, all right? So in other words, if you wanted to have a $1 coin, you would have it as silver. So they did specify what the weights there were. So the silver dollar was defined as 371.25 grains of silver, which you divide works out to about a $1.29, $1.29 for a troy ounce of silver. And that, by the way, that particular number goes back to the, uh, I think it's 1792 coin eject, the, the silver one. Okay, so the, so basically what happened is back in the 1790s, yeah, 1792, they originally defined the weights of gold and silver, the amount of grains that go into it. And at that point, it was a 15 to one ratio, precisely, like not, not with rounding. And then that was a little bit of a, well, hang, hang on. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, folks. It's, this stuff is so exciting. I can't stop talking about it. Let me just finish the trains of thought here. It's like a computer program where I've got do loop nests within each other. So coming way back to the different periods. So what I was trying to just say is during the classical gold period up until the Civil War, so, so sorry, up until the Civil War, people were just holding gold and silver coins in their pockets, Okay. The Gold Standard Act of 1900, this is another point I was making, 
that codified this definition of the gold dollar that implied $20.67 per troy ounce of gold. All right. And I said, like I said, that technically went back to 1837. Now, what we were talking about though is when did the US itself join the nations that were on the gold standard that's part of this period that at some point in the mid to late 1800s became the classical gold standard era. And then, you know, that's up for grabs because it was a gradual thing. And I'm saying the U.S. technically in 1873, they demonetized silver. So at that point, they discontinued the free coinage of the silver dollar. And in fact, in earlier years, other denominations like a half dollar or a quarter dollar we say, what's a quarter dollar? It's a quarter. We call it a quarter, right? 25 cents is one quarter of a dollar. Um, if you ever, <laughs> maybe some of you are like, I never thought of that before. That's why we call it a quarter, all right? Um, so that had been discontinued a bit earlier, but still up until 1873, technically, if you wanted to bring raw silver to the mint, they would stamp it into silver coins, silver dollar coins at that rate that I talked about. And um, which implied about a dollar twenty nine per troy ounce of silver. So that was discontinued in eighteen seventy three, and that would later be called the crime of seventy three. If you've read some stuff like you know Milton Friedman's Money Mischief or something, you might have seen people refer to that. That's kind of famous in these in this literature. That that phrase. What's interesting is right when the legislation passed when the, I think it was called the Coinage Act of 1873, went through and they discontinued the free coinage of the silver dollar. Nobody cared at that point. They didn't call it the crime of 73. And the reason was because of how bimetallism works, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. At that point, no, nobody wanted to be bringing silver to the mint anyway, or just with the way the prices were, that, that silver was undervalued according to the price ratios that had been put through in 1837, all right? And so consequently, nobody really objected. The fact that the mint dropped its, its long-standing policy to say, hey, if you bring us silver, we will stamp it into silver coins or fractions thereof, like a, like a half dollar piece or a, a quarter dollar piece and so forth, according to this ratio. They, were, they discontinued that, but nobody wanted to do it anyway. And the reason was, the market value of silver as just raw bullion was higher than it being stamped into the coins. And so there'd be no point to have it stamped in the coins. It kind of like it for a modern context, if you had like an actual, a quarter, let's say, that was made in like 1950, there's actually silver in that thing. I think it's like in 64 is when they, they switched over and then US quarters stopped having silver content. Okay, but pre-1964, regular U.S. coins, like, you know, quarters and dimes and what, they actually have silver content. You, know, you can go look it up on Google. Incidentally, that's why for people who want inflation hedges, I talk about getting junk silver, like for, you know, for regular people, like especially like college kids or something that are worried about the big crash coming. And so, you know, they can't afford to go get bricks of gold, but you can go, just go to a, a coin shop or something and get what's called junk silver. So you can get, just U.S. coinage from be, before certain dates that actually have silver content. And again, you can go Google it. That's why I like it because you know, anybody 
can tell what it is. Like you can show somebody who's not a fan of Peter Schiff even and say, look, you can tell this is a, a quarter from the year 1950, right? Like this isn't counterfeit and they can look at it and go, yeah, this looks like it's legit. And say, okay, go Google and look what the silver content is. All right, so that's why I think that's kind of a cheap solution instead of getting like a Krugerrands or something where <laughs> the average person, when you're trying to trade for ammo and, and bottled water after the big one, they might not know what that is. So anyway, it was just think about it. If you happened somehow like, I don't know, you get changed or the cashier gives you change, you find some some uh, jar in your uncle's uh, attic after he passes away and you inherit his stuff and he's got a bunch of old coins in there, all right, it would be goofy for you to go to the store and spend them, right? Even though, oh no, it's worth 25 cents. It's stamped right on there. I can go and buy things for 25 cents with this quarter from 1950. You would be silly to do that. It'd be better for you just to hold it because the silver content of the quarter is worth more than 25 cents, all right? So that's that's the general idea with this biometallism stuff. So I'm, I'll, again, I'll come back to that issue in a minute because that's kind of a cool thing how that works. But to finish that other train of thought I uh, that I was working on there, so in 1873, there was, at that point, silver was undervalued by the government's price ratios or, the, you know, their announcements of the definitions of the gold and silver dollar. And so nobody was bringing it to the mint anyway. And so the fact that they discontinued the policy wasn't a big deal. It was only later during that decade as more and more countries started demonetizing silver. And then I think there were also some big fines not not fines, but fines with a D, some discoveries of more silver deposits that increased production. And so the, the combination of those two things meant that silver in the world market fell relative to gold. And so then with the old standing, um, at least since 1870, or sorry, 1837, well, 1834 is when they switched, price ratios relative between gold and silver, even at that that price ratio now, it went back to silver being undervalued. And so people would have wanted to bring it to the mint. In other words, the, the best way to turn silver into market value now as, as its price fell would be to take it to the U.S. government and say, hey, stamp this into um, money at the exchange rate of roughly $1.29 per troy ounce. That that was now, put it to this way, that silver fell below $1.29 per troy ounce on the world market. I guess that's one way of putting it. And so now the fact that the U.S. Mint had it maintained its old policies would have been prepared to take raw silver and turn it into a product that was worth $1.29 per troy ounce that would have been nice. That was the best thing going or would have been except they had discontinued that policy back in 1873. So that's when mining and silver mining interests and other people started complaining about, hey, that was the crime of 73, all right? So that's the classical... Oh, okay, so the U.S. in terms of going on the gold standard, 1873 is when they discontinued the silver dollar. And so you might say, oh, so that's when the U.S. went on the gold standard. Well, not really because it wasn't taking gold and turning it into dollars at that point. And actually, the, the more significant thing is the existing what were called greenbacks were not that you couldn't redeem those for gold coin. All right. So think of the dates. I'm talking, I'm talking here about 1873. What happened a few years before? A big event in American history from 1861 to 1865 was the Civil War. And so in the Civil War, 
the government abandon specie payment and printed what were called greenbacks. So this was the greenback era. So that was unbacked money. Incidentally, you might be tempted to call it fiat money. I think in Mises' system that he lays out in the theory of money and credit, I think he would actually call it credit money because even though, yes, it was not redeemable, I think people believed the government would eventually redeem its, you know, its, its currency issue with gold and silver at some future date. And so then that was part of the reason people valued it. So I, I believe in terms of Mises' classification, he wouldn't call that fiat money technically because you may know this if you've been reading the stuff I've been doing for this booklet for the Mises Institute, you will know it because I mention it, that in his 1912 book, The Theory of Money and Credit, Mises has his classification of types of monies, you know, commodity money and then credit money and fiat money. And for fiat money, he says something like, we must admit that this is a theoretically possible category that the theory of exchange allows for, something like that. So what Mises is saying is, he doesn't think this thing called fiat money has ever existed, thank God, but he's just admitting, you know, spelling out the, the logic of my system and how subjective value theory works when applied to money, that, hey, we have to admit this is theoretically conceivable that people could hold this thing that has purchasing power, even though it's, you know, not a, a commodity valuable in and of itself, you know, for direct uses and... Um, and there's no expectation that it's ever going to be linked to such a commodity, that theoretically this could exist and we, we can explain it with, with the principles I'm laying out in this book. But he didn't think there had been a historical example of it yet, or at least not a definitive one. So in any event, I'm just mentioning that because it's even Rothbard, when I'm reading his stuff here, he, he refers to various periods of fiat money. And I'm just pointing out my understanding is Mises did not think that these paper issues of governments during wartime counted as fiat money. Because again, the public always thought, and correctly so in most of these cases, that the currencies were going to eventually be relinked back to gold and or silver. And so that's why Mises doesn't think they're fiat money. Okay, so back to the narrative here. So as of 1873, even though the U.S. government discontinued the free coinage of the silver dollar, it still was on the, the greenback period because it hadn't fully gone back because it had printed up so much currency basically during the Civil War. It would have been very painful, a very painful deflationary process to immediately go back to specie payment at the pre-war parodies. And so what they did instead was the, the phrase they used, a lot of the economists used was to say they allow the economy to grow up to the new price level, something like that. So the idea is during the Civil War, they printed a bunch of dollars. Just think of it this way. They printed a bunch of green pieces of paper. And so prices quoted in dollars went way up. And, and so what they then did in order to, so, so that would make, yeah, so, so prices of goods and services quoted in dollars went way up. And so then instead of just boom, right away imposing the painful deflation, instead they restricted the printing of new dollars and then let, real output grow over time so that just sort of a natural deflationary process, if you will, the price level came back down such that then relinking the dollar back to gold and silver at the pre-war parities wouldn't have been such a huge shock, right? That was the idea. So they did that. I think it was in 1875, they passed the legislation that said by 1879, we are going to go back 
to, you know, the, the species re- redemption. Okay, so the, the timeline then is during the Civil War, they stopped doing gold and silver specie redemption. The dollar was not any longer, you know, linked to, the, to those things. They printed a bunch of paper money. And then in, in 73, they said, we're not doing free coinage of silver anymore. But that was kind of a moot point since they were still not doing anything. And then 1875, they said, okay, by 1879, we're going to relink and, and start doing, you know, free coinage of gold. And if you, if you have U.S. currency, like if you have a $10 bill, we'll give you a, a gold eagle, $10 gold coin for it if you want. Right. And we will do that by 1879. And then they did do that by 1879. So the point being by 1879, the U.S. is now just on a gold standard, right? Because now there's no, they're back on gold and they're not on silver. Whereas when they discontinued the, so you could say they kind of went off silver in 73, but that's kind of a weird thing because they were off both gold and silver then, if you get what I'm saying. All right. So it's kind of a nuanced thing, but that was probably much longer than you wanted to hear as to why, when you say, when did the U.S. go on the gold standard, I, I'm going to say it was definitely on by 1879. But it is nuanced. Okay, so let me just talk a little bit more about this bimetallism thing since I brought it up. So originally in 1792, with the coin eject, they defined silver and gold with certain physical, you know, how many grains constitute a dollar. And again, it was with, with the gold, it was constituting, I think, a $10 piece. They didn't actually talk about a gold dollar. And, and why do they do that? Again, they wanted gold and silver coins in the hands of the public. Just to reiterate and elaborate, the U.S. federal government did not print official paper money until the Civil War. There's a, a bit of a asterisk there during the War of 1812, they started printing these things called treasury notes. And in particular, in the year 1850, they were issuing them in small denominations that people were, were using as currency. Like it, it, I think it's borderline, but fair enough. The earlier ones, I think it's, it's, it's less plausible because they were like large denominations. They bore interest. And for at least a lot of these things, like it would have a person's name on it. Right, so it was a debt instrument. Like, would it have some guy's name on it? And so, you know, to me, that's not that's not the same thing as them printing paper money. But you could pay your taxes with them and stuff like that. And so, some people uh, argue that they were that they were the first paper money that the federal government issued. But even there, okay, fine. They started doing a little bit in the War of eighteen twelve. So, still, originally, what the U.S. federal government produced was they coined silver and gold pieces that were stamped with various amounts of dollars on them, right? So the gold coins would be like $10, whereas the silver would be like $1 or a half dollar, a quarter dollar, and so on. And, so, and, and that's because, just the, for physical realities, right, that a dollar of silver weighs a certain amount. It's got, it's got a nice feel to it. It's, it's substantive, whereas a gold dollar, because it's one-fifteenth basically as much metal, isn't going to be as heavy, all right? So in other words, you wouldn't want to have a gold coin that was only a quarter dollar because that would be so little, right? Going the other way, you wouldn't want to have a silver coin that was $20 or 50, let's say, because that would be too heavy, all right? So that's why 
they had both gold and silver coins. And part of the rationale for the so-called bimetallism, meaning the dollar was defined both in terms of gold and silver, was so that they could make both coins, so that the average person could complete all of his transactions with actual coins. Because the founding fathers, the people you know, writing the Constitution, they had had a bad experience recently with the continental currency, right? The, the phrase, it's not worth a continental. And so that's part of what was going on here when they went and perhaps treasonously didn't revise the Articles of Confederation and decided just to draft up a new constitution. That's one of the things that they uh, included is a hostility to paper money. And in fact, there's a, there was a prohibition on the state governments. They were not allowed to issue any type of money except in the form of a gold and silver coin. Okay. So that's, that's the rationale, right? They wanted Americans to be able to make any payment of a certain amount of dollars or to pay a debt with gold and silver coins without having to resort to paper notes, to paper currency. And so that's why, you know, gold was convenient in terms of its weight for the larger denomination coins, whereas silver was better for the, either the dollar or fractions of a dollar. And so again, in 1792, in the Coinage Act of 1792, the U.S. dollar was defined. It was either 371.25 grains of pure silver, or at that time, it was 24.75 grains of pure gold, right? So if you just divide those two numbers together, it's exactly a 15 to 1 ratio. Now, at the time they did that, the world price of gold and silver was about 15 to 1. And so, it, you know, they didn't, they didn't just pick those numbers out of the air. They were trying to to make it so that they were roughly equivalent, so that they weren't valuing one versus the other. Like it was, it was neutral. Okay, but then what happens in time is once you lock that in on a bimetallic standard, the way economists describe it is they say, you, they, you know, governments thought they were getting a bimetallic standard, but what ends up happening is with fluctuating market prices, they get alternating monometallic standards. Meaning when gold prices or silver prices move so that, at the, at the original locked-in ratio, one is undervalued and one is overvalued, well, then the people are only going to spend the coins of the undervalued one, or sorry, of the overvalued one, and they're going to hoard or melt down or export abroad the coins that are undervalued at the po- by the policy. Okay, so soon after this policy went into effect, so like by like the early 1800s, like from... Uh, like I got a quote here from Rothbard, from 1810 until 1834, only silver coins circulated in the United States. And I have an ellipsis in there, cut some some of it out. Okay, so why is that? It's because of this thing called Gresham's Law. Okay, so originally they had the 15 to one ratio locked in, but then world prices moved closer to about 15 and a half to one. And incidentally, part of the reason for that, which I didn't know about, I read it in, in Jaeger's book, was France was on a bimetallic policy and they their ratios for the franc were implying a 15 and a half to one ratio and they had big stockpiles of both gold and silver and were standing prepared you know to to go ahead and accommodate the markets with those stockpiles and so with France sitting out there eventually kind of anchoring prices close to the 15 and a half to one then the US government over here is only is saying the silver is 15 to 1, so that that's overvaluing silver, right? In other words, if in reality, if on the world market, you would have to give up 15 and a half units of silver to obtain one of gold, 
but the U.S. government's only making you, in effect, bring 15 physical units of silver for every one of gold. Well, that's making silver more valuable relative to gold than it really is in the world market. So that means all the silver is going to go to the U.S. and no one's going to spend gold there because gold's undervalued. Again, it's the, the same principle as to why you would be silly to spend a 1950 quarter nowadays because it, it, the content of it's worth more than 25 cents, okay? And, and that's what, so Gresham's law is summarized as saying bad money drives out good. So just be clear here, Gresham's law only works with coercive government intervention in terms of enforcing legal tender laws or defining gold and, and silver ratios that deviate from the market price, all right? So some people might think that Gresham's law is saying the free market doesn't work in money production, right? To say bad money drives out good because it kind of sounds like it's saying, oh yeah, you get a few fly-by-night organizations out there, they ruin it for everybody and the public can't. That, that's, that's not what it means. It's talking about when the government officially overvalues one currency and undervalues another one, then people are only going to spend the overvalued currency and especially they're only going to use it in the payment of debts because you know, people are obliged to accept these coins you know, saying, oh, this is, you know, what, oh, you owe me $100? We're here. The government says you have to take these silver coins. You're not allowed to say, no, 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 because the way the government's valuing, I actually think the, these coins aren't worth $100 in silver. And you can say, no, yeah, they are, because either it's st stamped right on there. They are. Sorry, that's, that's the idea. Okay, so like I said, after, um, I guess because of this recognition in the 1834 legislation, they redefined the gold content of the dollar to make it more like 16 to one. Okay, so when they, they changed the, the gold content of the dollar down to 23.22 grains, so now the, the silver gold ratio is closer to 16 to one. So now they kind of flipped it the other way. And so at that point, the silver coins disappeared from circulation, as they say, and now people were just spending gold, okay? But again, the, then we go into the Civil War, not that soon thereafter, okay? So that's partly why you might ask, and, and Jaeger actually gets into this, one might argue that the U.S. technically is on a gold standard from 1834, it, what they did in 1837, by the way, <laughs> this is total geek stuff, but it took me a while to figure. If you go and plug in the numbers from the 1834 legislation, gold works out to $20.69 an ounce, troy ounce. And yet everybody was saying 20.67. So I was like, what the heck's going on? And what happens is apparently they rushed that legislation through. And so the definition, because they were actually defining it as a, a standard weight. And so to figure out how many pure ounces or how many pure grains of gold you had to see like what's the fineness ratio. And they had some crazy fraction. I don't remember what it was. It was like 116th over 134 or something like that. And then in 1837, because the people at the Mint were saying to Congress, hey, that's really hard for us to get that right. You know, in other words, you're making a coin and you're telling us in this legislation that we have to give something like 116, 134ths of gold per, you know, and then the rest of it is the base metal in order to make like a $10 gold eagle coin and so congress in the 1837 coinage act re revised it to nine tenths was the purity all right so then they could so it was easier for the mint just physically to make these coins now with nine tenths being the pure metal you know the the precious metal and then one tenth being the base so and then once once they did that that slightly changed 
things such that now it was $20.67 per troy ounce, rounding to the nearest cent. Okay, so there you go. You might say that was kind of an unnecessary tangent, but it took me about three hours to nail that down. So that's why I'm sharing it with you folks. Okay, so at that point then, like I said, Gresham's Law flipped and now gold was the, the coins that were in circulation and what you would be using to pay debts down and so forth. So Jaeger raises the question of saying, well, is the U.S. on a gold standard at this point? And he was saying no because they were about to go into the Civil War. And then, you know, so then there wasn't going to be, the you know, from 1861 to, uh, what, 1879, the U.S. wasn't really on a gold or a silver standard. And so it'd be kind of goofy to say the U.S.'s participation in the classical gold standard began in 1834 when there was going to be such a long period where they weren't honoring and redeeming U.S. dollars in terms of gold specie. And so that's why he says, nah, that, that we, don't, we don't count that. Hey, everyone. Let's just take a break from the discussion for me to mention, if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear it more frequently, that I encourage you to support the show. For details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay. What else do I want to tell you guys about? So in terms of the classical gold standard, why this is so neat, what, what's the, the characteristics of it? So during this period, and again, it wasn't that all these countries like came together and had a, a G50 meeting or something and all the major powers got together and said, hey, everybody, aren't colonies cool? Isn't monarchy awesome? Let's have a gold standard. That's not what happened. It was just each country on its own obeys the principles of a gold standard. And then as more and more countries did that, eventually the whole system was the classical gold standard. Okay. So what it meant was, you know, what, what would it mean for a given country to be on the gold standard in this classical sense during the classical period? It meant that the government stood prepared, you know, they announced what the, what the definition of their sovereign currency was, like, the, you know, the French franc, the British pound, U.S. dollar, German mark, in terms of gold content. So it was a physical weight. And then they stood prepared that anybody could go in and bring raw gold, you know, bullion to the mint, and they would stamp it into coins gold coins, you know, with the right denomination on there, according to whatever that official definition was. And then that would be the money. You know, you could go around spending those coins. And vice versa, to the extent there were notes that the government had issued, or also if, if banks issued notes, then, you know, there were claims to the national currency, that those would all be redeemable in gold, right? So if you, so for example, in the U.S., if you had, depending on the period, if you had like a $10 bill, you could go to the government and turn it in and they would give you a $10 gold eagle coin, right? And anybody could do that. It wasn't restricted to certain people. Anybody could do that. And then the final plank that a lot of these writers and the stuff stress is that it was also important that the goal, that the government allowed for the export and import of gold for this purpose. Okay, so so it wasn't merely that your local citizens could do this stuff, but if speculators thought that, you know, the US dollar and the British pound were out of whack, they could do sort of an arbitrage operation to take advantage of what they thought were mispricings. And so then that would involve shipping gold across the ocean. And so that had to be free and open, you know, with no restrictions on 
international transactions involving gold. And so if a country obeyed all those principles, then it was on the gold standard. And then, like I say, as more and more countries did that, eventually the whole thing was just dubbed the classical gold standard. You, know, you, don't, you don't need international agreements just as long as each government obeys those rules, then the whole system works. So let me just walk through a quick numerical example so you can see how it worked. And also, just look at my notes here. Yeah, well, let me, well, before, I'll end on that, but let me just, just finish the, the sketches of the different periods. So World War I comes along, that gold standard is done. All the, all the major belligerents go off gold. The U.S. was pretty good in terms of maintaining its tie to gold. The only thing they did was in 1917, Woodrow Wilson, that you know what, he um, put an, an embargo on U.S. exports of gold. Okay, so the Federal Reserve went nuts and printed up a bunch of dollars to buy bonds to fund the war effort and left to its own devices that would have caused people to exchange dollars for gold and to ship the gold out of the U.S. But Wilson in 1917 said, no, you can't do that. And so that's, it was, it was cheating, but he, he didn't like totally go off gold the way all the other belligerents did. Incidentally, in 1919, the U.S. government got rid of that embargo, so allowed for the export of gold. And so then the U.S. gold stocks were getting hammered because, again, they had printed up so many paper dollars that, in a, in a sense, the, the world price of gold was higher than 2067. And so what you would do is you would turn in your dollars to get gold at the you know, low price of $20.67 an ounce and then ship the ounces out of the country. Right, they'd be a cheap. Way. In other words, they'd be like a cheap way to buy gold is from the U.S. government. They were the ones offering it at the cheapest price to international investors. Once the U.S. government allowed for the ability to get gold out of the country again in 1919, and so because of that, they were going to run out of gold, and so that's why the Fed had to adopt a contractionary policy, and they jacked up interest rates to then record levels. You know, crushed the money supply. There was actually the large the the drop in prices and wage rates in what was then going to be the 1920 and 21 depression that was a result of this tightening was bigger than in any 12 month period uh even in the great depression okay but i would argue since that's all the government did they didn't intervene with all kinds of crazy price controls even though herbert hoover wanted to he was he was around back then um it was a it was a pretty quick bounce back to this you know boom bust cycle. Uh, by the way, I've, I've written on this, the 1920-21 depression, so I'll, I'll put a link. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 140. Okay, so all the belligerents go off gold, and then during the 20s, they start slowly trying to come back, but it never, they never restore all the privileges and abilities of every, you know, just anybody, whether domestic citizen or foreign investor, to exploit those opportunities, those arbitrage opportunities. And so you never had a return in the inner war years to the classical gold standard. Just to give you one example of, of the kind of thing I mean, I saw this in a, uh, George Selgin had a good piece summarizing the gold standard. So this, so this is Selgin writing, a genuine gold standard is therefore distinct from a gold bullion standard of the sort that several nations including the U.S., adopted between the world wars. 
The Bank of England, for example, was then obliged to convert its notes into 400 fine ounce gold bars only, making the minimum conversion amount in circa 1929 units of 1,699 pounds or $8,269. Okay, so if you don't know the context here, that's, that's tricky. What Selgin is saying is under the original classical gold standard, anybody could bring just a little bit of gold to the mint and get it you know, stamped into coins, or you could just bring a $10 piece of you know, currency and get a, get, get a $10 gold eagle. He's saying, whereas the Bank of so, so Great Britain, even though when you read history books and stuff, they'll say, uh, after much deliberation, you know, the, the, under Winston Churchill, uh, the, the British went back on gold at the pre-war parity you know, and they cut a deal with the Federal Reserve and the Fed inflated and stuff to help them out and everything. I mean, all this stuff, like once you understand how the gold standard worked and the things going on, a lot of these other events fall into place. So like the Fed had an easy money policy from like 26, 27 onward that fueled the stock market bubble, which then crashed in 29. And you say, well, why did they do that? And part of it was because they were helping bail out Great Britain because Great Britain wanted to go link back to gold you know, it's, uh, the British pound was was at four eighty six, four dollars and eighty six cents, going into World War One, and the British had inflated more than the Americans had, and so it would take less than four dollars and eighty six cents to buy a British pound in the early nineteen twenties, and so Great Britain, for matters of prestige and whatever, wanted to link back at the pre war parity, and Winston Churchill was actually as the um, head of the Exchequer, I don't know if I said that word right, was the one who linked it back. And I'm saying the, what Selgin's getting at here is, strictly speaking, if you wanted to turn British pound, you know, paper currency notes from, issued by the Bank of England into gold, you had the minimum amount they would do is they say, okay, you, you, you only can get, the minimum is 400 ounce gold bars. Like that's, that's what you need. So you had to bring in the equivalent of, at the time, $8,269. And this was back in the 1920s. So that's a lot of money in order to, to do this. So the point being, it, it was largely for other central banks and maybe large institutional investors. But this isn't something that the average person could do very easily. Okay, so that, that's just one of the issues to show even when you read that, oh, after the war, eventually all the countries went back on gold. And then because the gold standard is so stupid, that's why Hitler came to power and the depression happened and all the countries went off gold in the 30s because they realized how stupid it was. And that's goofy. Like, say what you will, but that, that wasn't the classical gold standard they went on. So it's kind of like, yeah, they had these rules. They went off and to print a bunch of money to just slaughter millions of people in World War I. And then they kind of half-heartedly went back on, but it would have been too painful. So they didn't really go back on. They kind of were cheating and then it didn't work. Well, imagine that. All right. So what they sort of had, besides, you know, George calling it there a bullion standard, he called it a gold exchange standard. So in the interwar period, what they tried to do is basically have other, you know, central banks around the world holding British pounds or US dollars to a lesser extent, I think, as like their assets. And then the, the British and the Americans were going to say, hey, but don't worry, we're good for it because you can always just convert it to gold if you want. And then FDR in 33 famously seizes all the gold, 
revalues gold at $35 an ounce. World War II happens. And then there's the Bretton Woods Agreement. And so there, again, it was a similar thing. I think originally at that conference, they thought it was going to be British and American, you know, their their assets as the reserve currencies. But over time, the Americans just overshadowed them so that by the late 1950s, let's say, when the major governments had all finally sort of gotten back to what they were going to do on the Bretton Woods Agreement, it was basically the U.S. dollar was the reserve asset of the world. So it's like for all the central banks of the world, they were holding U.S. dollar assets rather than physical gold. They still could hold physical gold, but the idea was the system was supposed to be they were going to hold claims on dollars. And then if they wanted to, though, and their currencies were defined in terms of dollars. Like, so there were fixed exchange rates in terms of dollars. And then that was still in theory linked to gold because the U.S. government said, hey, for you central banks, our buddies out there will exchange dollars for gold at the rate of $35 an ounce. Okay, but, but again, it's at that point under Bretton Woods, the U.S. government would only honor that pledge with other central banks. So again, you can see just how, how tenuous this was a far cry from the classical gold standard when anybody could just walk in and say, hey, here's a $10 bill. Give me a $10 gold coin. And then, as I say, that, even that system died when finally Richard Nixon in 71 threw in the towel and said, no, we're not even going to give it to other central banks. Okay, so the last point I want to make here is one, one clarification. If you read, there, there's, for example, some nice essays from Milton Friedman talking about the virtues of floating exchange rates as opposed to pegged fixed rates. And, and he says things like, uh, you know, governments should allow their currencies to fluctuate against each other to clear supply and demand, just like, you know, governments allow the price of potatoes to, to fluctuate until the market's cleared. And if governments impose price controls on foreign exchange, so like where a government locks in and says, no, 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 if you're going to trade our currency against foreign currencies, our currency has to have this minimum value. It's illegal to trade our currency for less than that, you know, vis-a-vis other currencies. What's that going to do? Well, it's going to lead to shortages, right? There's going to be shortages of the foreign currency in, in your country's foreign exchange markets, right? And, and yeah, that seems very compelling. So it seems like floating exchange rates are awesome. And yet, if you read Austrians like Murray Rothbard, he talks about the virtues of the fixed exchange rates under the classical gold standard. And so you say, well, what's that? So what's going on here is under the classical gold standard, when each country defines its sovereign currency as a certain weight, physical weight of gold, that implies a fixed exchange rate among the sovereign currencies. So for example, in in the heyday of the classical gold standard, if you had 4.25 British pounds, that would get you a troy ounce of gold. And if you had $20.67 in U.S. currency, that also would get you a troy ounce of gold, right? From the Bank of England and the U.S. government, respectively. So if you just divide those two, you can see that it implies $4.86 in U.S. currency should trade for one British pound. Going, you know, going through gold. Okay. 
So that's like you want to think about that's like the anchor point, as it were. So if you read stuff from this literature or you read about after World War I, the British decision to try to, you know, revalue the pound back at the pre-war parity, you, you'll see them talk about the $4.86. And, and that's what they're talking about, right? So it wasn't that the British government or the Bank of England said, hey, we're going to peg the British pound to $4.86 of U.S. currency. That's not what they did. No, they were defining the British pound in terms of gold content, you know, in terms of a physical weight of gold, such that if you ran the numbers, it worked out to you needed 4.25 British pounds to get you a tri ounce of gold. And then likewise, like I say, the U.S. government was defining the dollar in physical terms, physical weight of gold, a certain number of grains of pure gold, such that if you did the math, it worked out to about $20.67. So that's, that's where the 486 per British pound comes from. Just like with other physical units, you know, if somebody defines how long a, a, a meter is and someone defines how long a foot is, you could say, well, what's the implied conversion ratio between centimeters and inches or something like that? Okay, so th that's, that's what was going on there. Okay, now it wasn't a price control in the sense that there was coercion. So it wasn't that if the U.S. government caught somebody trying to buy British pounds and they were spending more than 486 for it, that you were going to get a prison sentence or get a fine. No, there, there was no coercion involved. It was just the U.S. government stood prepared to exchange dollars for gold and vice versa at the rate of $20.67 an ounce. And so what would happen is, let me just walk through this a numerical example to round out this episode. Suppose, just to see how this worked, you'll see the beauty of the, the classical gold standard and then also understand why Rothbard likes fixed exchange rates and doesn't think that, you know, that they're a problem. By the way, before I forget, Milton Friedman wasn't stupid. Like he understood the nuances I'm talking about here. All I'm saying is back when I was younger and read Milton Friedman's essay, making the case for floating exchange rates, I thought that was the best thing and it never occurred to me like that you could have fixed exchange rates that, that made even more sense. That, that's what I'm talking about. That, that, that's what I'm getting at here. So Friedman obviously understands the stuff I'm talking about right now. So anyway, back to the story. So suppose we're originally in a nice equilibrium where it takes $4.86 in US currency to buy a British pound in the foreign exchange market. And then the U.S. government just starts printing dollars like crazy, like paper dollars. Okay, so what happens? Prices start going up in the United States, quoted in dollars, and British goods now look cheap. And so Americans say, hey, let's go import a lot of stuff from Britain. So they take their dollars to the foreign exchange market, and they start trying to buy British pounds with which to then buy British imports. So that pushes up the dollar price of British pounds. So instead of being 486, let's just exaggerate and say it goes up to $10. All right, really exaggerating. They printed a ton of, ton of money. All right, Stephanie Kelton took over, just printing up money like crazy. So what happens? Under the classical gold standard, well, I'll show you now why if that were to happen, there'd be an incredible arbitrage opportunity. So what would happen is, suppose there was a speculator, an arbitrageur, who had $2,067 in U.S. currency. All right, I'm going to show you how he's going to make, turn that into a lot more money. He's going to take the $2,067 to the U.S. authorities, hand the, those, the paper money over, and then get 100 ounces of gold, right? Because it's one ounce is 
$20.67, so just move the decimal place twice. So $2,067 gets you 100 ounces of physical gold. Then he's going to put it on a ship. Well, he's going to buy insurance on it. Put it on a ship, ship it across the Atlantic over the Bank of England, gives the Bank of England 100 ounces of physical gold. You know, there's bars of the yellow metal. And he's going to get 425 pounds, British pounds for it, right? Because it's 4.25 British pounds for one ounce. So for 100, you move the decimal place twice, boom, 425 pounds, British pounds, the, the, the British unit of money. All right, so now he's got 425 British pounds. Now he goes to the foreign exchange market where the currencies are trading against each other directly. And by stipulation in this scenario, I said that it takes 10 US dollars to get one British pound. So if you go into the foreign exchange market with 425 British pounds, you can trade them for 4,250 US dollars. And then... Now, so now look where, where we're back to. You started with 2,067 US dollars and you transformed it into 4,250 US dollars. Huge percentage rate of return there. Less whatever the, the fees were to insure the gold and ship it. Okay, so that's the idea. So of course, so notice how it, re, it pushes you back towards the equilibrium, the anchor point that by you turning in dollars and taking out gold, for one thing, you're destroying the number of dollars held by the public. So that pushed it, you know, that re removes pressure on US prices. But also by draining gold, you're going to scare the authorities. So they're going to stop running the printing press so much because they're going to run out of gold. And then on the other end, you're giving the gold to the Bank of England. So they're probably going to print more British pounds now. And actually, they're, they're giving you more, but also besides them just giving it to you and increasing the supply that way, they might not feel more comfortable to print more anyway. All right, so you're increasing the amount of British pounds and decreasing the amount of US dollars. So that's going to bring the dollar price down in the foreign exchange market, right? And also too, you're, you're then taking the British pounds and going and buying dollars with it to get back into your original currency, to complete, you know, the, the transaction, to get the rate of return quoted in that original currency. So just the act of you taking British pounds and buying dollars with it, that's going to also push down the dollar price of pounds. Okay, so I just walked you through there showing how if you were way above the 486 point, forces would be set in motion that would push the exchange rate back down. And we could tell an, a, a you know, reverse story if for some reason you could buy a British pound for only $2. That would mean the British authorities had printed a lot more pounds than the Americans had printed dollars. And so then you'd have gold flown out of the Bank of England into the U.S. vaults. And that would chasten the British authorities and slap them on the wrist for printing so much. So that's how the, the classical gold standard worked. If any one government inflated faster than the other ones, it would get spanked right away and gold would flow out of its vaults. And so that kind of kept everybody honest. And just to round out the discussion, so you see, once you realize how that worked, and so you can see, to say that the, the, there was a fixed exchange rate of $4.86 in U.S. currency for one British pound under the classical gold standard, that wasn't a price control. That wasn't like some regulation or something. That was just the natural anchor point. And in fact, the real world market exchange rates did fluctuate or up, you know, around that value. It's just if they strayed too far one way or the other, then ultimately there would be, you'd hit what's called the gold export point or the gold import point, meaning once 
taking into account all the other costs associated with it, it made sense to physically ship the gold. That's what people would do. And so that was the ultimate ceiling. So there, it was, you know, narrowly circumscribed an upper and lower bound on that, which were the gold export and import points. And then even, I believe those were like the ultimate ceiling and floor. But then beyond that, like just speculators would see that coming and they would, you know, short the currencies or, or buy them depending on the situation. All right. So in other words, in practice, there actually wasn't a lot of shipping of gold across the ocean because of this stuff, which you think about that'd be kind of wasteful to have to do that every time the currencies fluctuated a little bit. Okay. So that's, in other words, like speculators seeing the, oh, the dollar is overvalued right now. That means the authorities are going to change their behavior. And so let's start anticipating that move. So prices would kind of adjust anticipating things. And then the authorities could see the prices moving and they would have to adjust also. <laughs> like the speculators would kind of speed everything up is what I'm getting at. So it's not that the U.S. authorities would just keep cranking out the printing press, cranking out new dollars. And then the dollar price of the pound would keep going up until, oh, now it's a gold export point and then be huge withdrawals of gold from the vaults that would then be shipped across the, like, no, speculators would see that coming and they would start shorting the dollar ahead of time. And then their action would force the authorities to rein in their printing activities sooner than later, okay? But in any event, you can see how to say the U.S. dollar was, had a fixed exchange with the pound at 486, that wasn't a price control, the way that the, you know, the minimum wage is a price control or the way there's rent control in New York City apartments. So that wouldn't lead to a shortage or a surplus because, again, at any given time, the actual foreign exchange rates were allowed to fluctuate. So you did have floating rates, but the point is there were fixed anchor points that the floating rates would quickly be brought back towards if they, if they were deviated too far from them. And so why is that neat, <laughs> for lack of a precise term? That's a technical term we use is because in effect, all the countries that were on the classical gold standard, they all had one currency. They had a global currency. <gasps> was George Soros's dream? Well, no, it was gold. All right, it was the market's money. So they had their individual sovereign currencies, but to the extent that they were defined in terms of gold and their governments honored that definition, then it was like all the different countries were basically using gold as the money, just with local flavor. Just like if... You know, if they had a different language and used a different word to say gold ounce, that wouldn't change the economic essence of it, right? So it, there was an, before World War I, on the, in the heyday of the classical gold standard, there was an incredible freedom in terms of international commerce, movement of capital, and even movement of populations. And, you know, even people like John Maynard Keynes have just written eloquently about just the, the international division of labor and capital mobility and stuff like that, and just how goods could could flow freely from different regions. You know, raw materials from the colonies would come in and they get processed in this country, then they move over here, and how everything flowed and, you know, governments didn't interfere with that. And so investors, among other things, investors didn't have to worry about fluctuating exchange rates. Right? You, have, you have all sorts of other things to worry about when you're running your business, but like if you're running a business in the United States right now and you have some, you know, raw materials that are harnessed in some Southern states and then maybe you have some factories in Michigan and then you sell the stuff 
on the East Coast, you don't have to, there's lots of stuff you have to worry about, but you don't have to worry about the currencies in the different states because every state just uses the US dollar, right? And so all your prices and you know, your, your inputs are all in the same unit of money as, as your revenues. Whereas if you were in, operating in Europe, and that's also the rationale for the euro, by the way, but before that, when they had all the respective sovereign currencies like the French, Frank, German, Mark, Italian, Lira, and so forth, the British pound, if you had different operations or components of your business located in the different countries under floating exchange rates where they could move significantly with fiat currencies, then you'd be exposed to exchange rate risk, right? That you'd have to be worried like, oh, if you paid the workers in your factories in, uh, in France, you know, their, their wages were determined in terms of francs and you were a British industrialist, well, what happens if the franc pound exchange rate moves on you? Well, now all of a sudden those wages might get more expensive from your point of view. Okay, but under the classical gold standard, you have to worry about stuff like that because all of the national currencies, their respective exchange rates were fixed. And the you know, in practice, the daily exchange rates didn't deviate too much from those fixed ratios. So it was like the whole world was on gold. And that's really what the money was. Okay, I will wrap up there. There's a lot of other stuff that I couldn't get to. So for reading on the, you know, the chapter itself and other things I've mentioned, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 140, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.